I just want to say this, having had the joy of being here this morning and, and having Gracia share, I thought to myself, she will put you, in a sense, in a different dimension of walking with the Lord. And that's good. I thought, boy, Lord, you know, my life is basically an easy life. I mean, I love what I do, as I hope you do your ministry as well. But I got to, got to thinking about some of the things in the paths that God takes certain ones down. And uh, learning anew about the Lord in those situations, that was rich and it was a blessing to me, and I'm sure it was to others, Gracia. And she will be sharing uh, in a moment, but first the video, and then Gracia, if you would, please. At the end of May 2001, American missionaries to the Philippines, Martin and Gracia Burnham, made the fateful decision to celebrate their 18th wedding anniversary in a secluded resort on the island of Palawan. About four in the morning, there was pounding on the door, bang, 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 and at first I thought it was a drunk guard or something, and um, Martin, just as he got to the door, it burst open, and in came three guys with M16s, and I think one of them had a mask on. The masked men were Abu Sayyaf, a militant Muslim terrorist group with ties to Al-Qaeda and Osama bin Laden. Along with 20 other guests, the Burnhams were forced from their room at gunpoint and taken many miles across the open sea to the Muslim stronghold of Basilan. For more than a year, the Burnhams were constantly on the move, living in primitive conditions in the jungle, evading capture from the Philippine military under the total control of their captors. They were the enemy, and we never forgot that they were the bad guys. But on the other hand, they were our family. They were the people that we lived with for a year and hiked with and starved with. And you got to know the personalities of the guys. Soon after the events of September 11th, the news media took greater notice of the plight of Martin and Gracia and kept their story in the national headlines. As a result, millions of people around the globe began praying diligently for their safe release. I had no idea the magnitude of how many were praying but on towards the end when things would be bad I even remember that that last day of the um, June 7 that last gun battle we'd been hiking sat down for a rest and I just looked over at Martin and I said people are praying for us and he said I know we, we knew throughout their captivity the Burnhams had lived through 16 different gun battles between the Abu Sayyaf and the Philippine military. On the afternoon of June 7th, over a year since their abduction, the bullets erupted once more. I dropped from the hammock, and before I even got to the ground, I was shot in the leg. And I kind of slid down the mountain. It was so steep. I slid down a little bit and came to rest beside Martin. And I looked over at him, and he was bleeding from his chest. During the gun battle, you know, the grenades were going off all around us and the shooting. But I just kept thinking every moment was my last moment. And um, sometime during that time, I just felt Martin's body just get real heavy, a heaviness. Tragically, Martin was killed during their fight. Gracia was rescued and returned home amidst a national spotlight. Was there no way Gracia or Martin could escape? Sean Hannity, welcome to the show. Good to have you. Thank you for being with us today. Thank you. Well, it started as a romantic getaway for Martin and Gracia Burnham, American.
missionaries working in the Philippines. For her first days I interviewed, I want to thank her for having the courage to be here today. Gracia, good to have you with us. Thank you. The outpouring of support was beyond anything Gracia could have imagined, especially at Martin's funeral. I still didn't realize the how many people were involved and praying and would want to go to Martin's funeral. And I looked around in the crowd and I saw some of my friends from college there, saw some of our co-workers there. I thought, all my friends are here. It was a good day. Martin would have been proud of his funeral. Gracia wanted to honor Martin's memory and have the opportunity to say thank you to the hundreds of thousands of people who prayed for their protection and safe return. During her time of recovery, Gracia wrote, In the presence of my enemies, a riveting personal account of her and Martin's ordeal with the terrorists. This emotionally moving, powerfully inspirational account of faith through adversity landed on the New York Times bestseller list, and millions of people came to know Gracia in a more personal way. Now a much sought-after speaker, Gracia travels throughout the country speaking to audiences about the lessons and spiritual truths she learned while in captivity and how God continues to sustain her and the children in the aftermath of Martin's death. Gracia continues to reflect on her ordeal and the lessons God taught her. To Fly Again features Gracia's most recent thoughts and reflections concerning the challenges we face when we lose control of some aspect of life and how we can find hope in God's grace. Gracia Burnham lived through a real nightmare of fear, captivity, physical trauma, and devastating loss. Yet she has survived the ordeal more convinced of God's grace than ever before. Gracia truly has lived in the presence of her enemies and with God's help, has learned to fly again. It's an honor to be here today. Thank you for having me. Uh, one morning, about a month into our captivity, we were all packed and ready to mobile. That's the word we used to move out or to be on the move and We were new at this hostage thing, and we heard that morning that the military was near, so they told us to pack up and be ready. The leaders were all sitting around trying to decide exactly where we should go, and they met for so long that some of the guys got impatient, and they started setting their hammocks back up again. All of a sudden, from across the field came soldiers running towards us with their guns blaring, And we hit the ground and began to crawl, much like I'm sure you've seen Marines in training crawling, trying to get away. And as the Abu Sayyaf would fire at the military, we would get up and run. When there was a volley of gunfire our direction, we would drop and crawl. We got far enough away from the gun battle to head off down a trail into the jungle, and suddenly ahead of us, there was gunfire. So we headed over on in that direction. There was gunfire that way. We headed over there. There was gunfire. A helicopter appeared from nowhere and began crisscrossing the field we were in, and we realized we were surrounded. We stayed all day long in that field. There would be sporadic gun battles all day long. The sun beat down on us. There was no shelter or shade. We had several wounded that day, and 
they bandaged them up as well as they could and put them where else? Right beside me and Martin. There was this one kid. I was sure he was dying. He was one of the ones who got impatient and he wasn't ready to run that morning. He was still in his hammock. I reacted the way I would react many times after that during our year of captivity when we were running for our lives or we were in a tense situation. I got diarrhea. There was long grass nearby and I just kept kept making trips into the grass. A good thing happened that day. We got a backpack. A few guys died in that early morning gun battle and they started passing out their stuff. And a backpack came down the row of guys where I was seated, so I took it. And I put everything in there that we owned at the time. There was a sheet I'd taken from a hospital several days before, our toothbrush that we were sharing, a couple of shirts. And when night fell, we started to walk. We just walked right out of there. And we were to learn that one of the unwritten rules between the Abu Sayyaf and the military was they never had gun battles at night. Well, I still had the runs and... Every time we would stop, I would go do what I needed to do. During one stop, I left my backpack on the ground by Martin and went off to go to the bathroom. He was sitting on a log, and as I was stepping back on the trail, they suddenly said, go, 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 move. Well, I thought the military had found us, so I ran and got behind Martin, and we headed off down the trail, and I remember thinking, boy, I feel so light and free right now when I suddenly realized I'd left my backpack back by the log. So I turned around to go get it, but a new guy had joined our group that night. He was big. He was mean looking. I didn't know him. He lowered his weapon and said, you go. I said, no, 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 no. I'm just going to get my backpack. It's right there. I could, we could both see it. He said, no, you go. And I had to turn and follow Martin on down the trail and I just fell apart. I started to sob. I said, Martin, I am so sorry. I have just lost everything we own. Martin paused and turned and looked at me for just an instant. And he said, Gracia, I forgive you. Now you need to forgive yourself. Many of you have said, we prayed for you. We followed your story and we prayed. And I wonder if you were praying for me in that moment, just when I needed it. Maybe you were praying for me while I was trying to forgive myself for doing something so stupid. I call that my worst day followed by my best day because the next day we got to a little Muslim village and they killed a cow so we had plenty to eat and then a box made its way into that village from our new tribes mission headquarters some 600 miles away on a totally different island how did that happen and in that box was everything I'd left behind the night before plus letters from our children telling us that they were okay. They kind of told us in code that they were back in Kansas with their grandparents. We were in that village just a few hours, a pretty short window of time for a box to get in there, don't you think? And I have a feeling that people were praying for us, and I think I'm a living testimony of what prayer can do, and I just want to thank you for your prayers. People ask me, what was the hardest thing about being a hostage? The hardest thing for me was I saw what I was really like. In one swift moment in time, everything I had except Martin was taken away from me. And when everything's gone and you're in an uncomfortable position, you see what's really in your heart. I was born into a loving Christian family. I became a believer in Jesus at an early age. I married this terrific guy who had an incredible gift of piloting airplanes. And we decided we wanted to make a difference in the world. So we packed up. 
And we left the American dream and we went to the Philippines where Martin flew food and medicine and cargo and people into some of the most primitive places in the world. And I was a pretty good person, thought I was anyway, but in the jungle, I came face to face with a gracia I didn't want to see. I saw a me that I didn't even want to believe existed. I saw a hateful gracia. There were days I hated those guys for what they were doing to us, for the pain they were causing our family. I saw a covetous gracia. When we were starving and I saw someone with food and they ate it, I coveted what they had. I was filled with envy at them. I saw a despairing gracia. Nobody cares about us anymore. This has gone on for so long. Everyone's forgotten us. I saw a faithless gracia. Here is a journal entry that I scribbled one day on some borrowed paper using a pen that barely worked. And this is not pretty. This was a very hard day for me. Why does God keep me here to suffer day after day? I got almost hysterical in the afternoon. Martin tells me not to give up. I've tried to be a good hostage and be patient. And where has it gotten me? Eight and a half months and still here. God is pleased to have me suffer and I'm tired of it. Hebrews 4.12 says, God's word is a discerner that looks at our hearts and exposes us for what we really are. Nothing in all creation can hide from him. Everything's open and exposed before his eyes. And we might look together on the outside. And we might have a whole lot of props that keep life going well for us. Here in America, we've got lots of props, don't we? Careers, money, lovely homes, families. But God sees what we are inside. But God's good. He knows our frame. He remembers that we're dust and he loves us. And he's on our side when we're weak and we're needy. And God didn't wait for me to get my act together there in the jungle. Even as I complained at him for keeping us there for so long, he started to work in my heart. I asked Martin one day, where is the love, the joy, the peace, the contentment? You know, all those things that are supposed to characterize believers in Jesus. Where are those things? Because I'm looking at myself. I see the bad and the worse. Where's the good? And Martin said, Love, joy, peace, those aren't things you can make happen in your own heart. Those are gifts from the Holy Spirit of God. Let's ask for them. Well, I had tried and failed to find those things in myself for months. And we started to pray and ask God to work good things in us. And it seems like we were either running for our lives from the military for days and nights on end, totally exhausted, or we were in what we thought was a safe place And we were hiding out and we were laying low and we were totally bored. And every once in a while during those days and weeks of boredom, a magazine or something to read would make its way into camp. We loved that. It gave us something to do. We especially liked Reader's Digest. We would read them till they fell apart. I would read them aloud to Martin. He would read them aloud to me. We really liked the jokes. And one day Martin read this one to me. It's called Writer's Block. Having encouraged her class of 11-year-olds to use descriptive language in the story she had just asked them to write, my wife was disappointed when one boy used the adjective big to describe a castle. She asked the boy to be a bit more creative and told him to rewrite the sentence. Minutes later, he was back at her desk. This time the sentence read, I went into the castle, which was big. And when I say big, I mean big. Yeah, we laughed too. Uh, A day or so later, Martin said, Gracia, I've been thinking about that joke. And 
about something Jesus said. He said, if you want to be great in God's kingdom, be the servant of all. And I think when he said all, he meant all. He didn't mean all, but the bad guys holding you hostage. And I watched Martin start to serve those guys. There was this one kid, 57. That probably wasn't really his name, but that's what we called him. 57. His job was to carry the M57 through the jungle. And M57 is heavy weaponry. It's a four or five foot long metal tube. And during a gun battle, they had this tripod thing that they would put the M57 on. This is the blonde description of a 57. And they would put the mortar in the front and shoot it, in our case, at the military. Well, 57 was always in a bad mood. I told Martin, I called him 57 because for 57 days in a row, he'd been in a bad mood. One day, we were in a gun battle. We had some casualties. So did the military. The Abu Sayyaf killed a medic, a point man, and a radio man, which meant we gained a medical bag, a weapon, and a radio. Well, the next day when nobody was looking, Martin and I kind of went through that medical bag And we sort of lifted some things we thought we were going to need in the future. Some pain reliever, some antibiotics, some anti-diarrhea medicine. (laughs) And we hid that away amongst our stuff. Well, we learned that 57 suffered from headaches. That's why he was always in a sour mood. And every time we would see him start to rub his temples, Martin would take him some of our stash of pain reliever. You know, that kid's attitude towards us changed totally. Not long after that, they sent 57 out on a striking force. I told you about those in Sunday school, right? A striking force was a group of 10 or 15 guys who they would send to another area of the island we were on to wreak some havoc in order to keep the attention away from our group. We never knew if we would see them alive again. Things didn't always go well for them. When 57 came back to camp, he was all smiles when he saw Martin. He gave him that two-cheeked Muslim greeting. As we prayed, God began giving us the victories within ourselves that we desperately were asking him for. He used everyday occurrences to show us their neediness. Like a conversation I had one day with Nadim. Nadim was a young guy, maybe 16, 18 years old. And he spoke enough English so we could communicate a little bit with him. One of the requirements of a Muslim is they're supposed to read their Quran every day. But when the Abu Sayyaf would read their Quran, they didn't read it silently to themselves like we would read a book. They read it aloud. Only they didn't just read it. They had this sing-song, minor key, beautiful, haunting chant that they did. And one would start in reading and they would all think, oh, I haven't done my Quran reading today. And they would all start in Different chapters, different books, different tunes. I called it choir practice. I kind of figured if the military really wanted to find us, they just needed to open their ears during Quran reading. One day after Nadim was finished reading, I asked him, Hey, what did you just read? And his eyes lit up. He said, Oh, I just read my favorite psalm. I said, Really? What does it say? He said, I don't know. It's in Arabic and I don't speak Arabic. I was shocked. I said, Nadim, you're reading words you don't understand? The reason it was his favorite psalm is he had read it so many times, he didn't have to think about it anymore when he read it. I said, you know what you need to do? You need to get a Quran that's been translated into your dialect, and then you'll know what you're reading. He said, oh, oh, no, ma'am. Then it would be corrupted. 
And I realized that Nadim is basing his whole life and eternity on a book he's never read, is not likely to read. How's Nadim going to hear the gospel without a preacher? We need some preachers, some people willing to go to the hard places. Maybe that's why we were there in that situation, a hard place. Do we pray to the Lord of the harvest to send forth laborers into his harvest as long as it doesn't inconvenience me and mess up my comfortable life? Here's a quote I found on Facebook of all places by a famous missionary, C.T. Studd, who could have had a comfortable life playing world-class cricket in England, but instead chose hard places. He said, some people like to live within the sound of a church or chapel bell. I want to build a rescue shop within a yard of hell. Working within a yard of hell is not going to be a pleasant place. There will be lots of opposition there, but we need some people willing to go to the hard places. And hard places is what's left in the world. Maybe a people group would be classified as hard to reach because they're isolated. They say there are some 2,000 language groups in our world who've never had anyone come into their world and tell them anything. They don't know the basics of clean drinking water, much less what the gospel is. Working in hard places is what Ethnos 360 does. Ethnos 360 is the new name of the organization, formerly known as New Tribes Mission. For 75 years, NTM, Ethnos 360 now, has been working in isolated villages, and there's still a lot to do. The job has to be done. The last tribe, the last man, and we need quality people to help us take the gospel there. You know, God's always picked certain people to do a difficult work. I don't have to convince you with this job. God's going to pick some of you. Do you have the faith, the courage, the urging to say, God, do you want me? Do you want to use my life? Do you want to use me to make a difference in the world? A long-term sign-me-up difference, not to go on a short-term mission trip. A lifelong career missionary, and to some of you, God will answer, yes, that's what I have for you. Ethnos 360 can train you and send you out. Even if you go with another, another mission organization, they can give you specialized training for going into totally unreached areas where you'll encounter very unique barriers. And I'd love to talk to any of you who are in that boat today. Maybe a peace people group would be classified as hard to reach because of their ideology. They aren't going to be open to what you have to say, and it may not be a very safe place for you to live. But we need some people willing to go to the hard places. Maybe your job is not to go. Maybe you're to stay here and you're to pray. Because we need people praying for us. New Tribes Mission and New Tribes Mission Aviation is working with all we've got to go into some very difficult places. And we need you to pray. So here's how you can help us. If at the back you would pick up a NTMA journal... This will give you ideas about how you can pray, stories about what's happening in the world with our aviation department. Sign up to get updates. When you do, I think there are a few more DVDs back there. This has 12 stories about what's happening in places all over the world, very remote places. And it's worth getting just for the IYO DVD, Story of a People Group. Um, Please help us by... By praying and staying updated. I talked with a lady one day after I spoke and she said, um, you know, Gracia, what I do at night now when, when I can't go to sleep, I don't count sheep anymore. I count Muslims. One Muslim comes to Jesus. 
Two Muslims come to Jesus. Three Muslims come to Jesus. Oh Lord, may it be so for your honor and your glory. Four Muslims come to Jesus. You have heard that Muslims all over the world are coming to Jesus, haven't you? My friend from Iran says, it's like God is running a special on Muslims right now. And I wonder if what's happening in the Muslim world all over the place is an answer to that sweet Mennonite lady's prayer. Do you think? The prayers of God's people, how we need them. Well, you guys know the rest of our story, how for months it looked like our release was right around the corner and then something would happen and negotiations would break down again and we would be back to square one again and how that went on for what seemed like forever to us and you know how Martin died in the gun battle that rescued me, but I got to come home and raise my children. Can I tell you about the family? I think we have family photos. Uh, my kids are grown now. Oh, those are my grandchildren. Aren't they sweet? God's been good to me. They're kind of blurry there. Um, the two oldest, the two boys, have accepted Jesus as their Savior. Isn't that neat? And do you have another one of the family? This is the family. They're grown. God's been good to us. They love the Lord, very involved in missions themselves. And you know what my big problem is now? Because of my experience, everyone thinks I'm an expert on everything, and I get invited to speak places I don't belong. There was the FBI Victims of Crime Symposium. They gave me the whole morning, and it doesn't take long to say, I was one, and I didn't like it. I spoke at Tyson Chicken a while back. When I said yes, I thought I was going to a chicken factory. You know, people with hairnets and chicken feathers flying through the air. And I had my chicken jokes all planned to tell. Why did the chicken cross the street? To show the possum it really could be done. What is the chicken's least favorite day of the week? Friday. I heard that. Then I found out I was going to the corporate headquarters of Tyson Chicken. Did you know Tyson is the second largest producer of food, protein, worldwide? So I ditched my chicken jokes. I didn't think they were appropriate for the chief financial officer of Tyson worldwide. I've been the expert on BBC News. You know when that panel of experts gives their expert opinion? Of course, we were discussing terrorism. Next time you see a panel of experts, you can be pretty sure one's not an expert. But one event I was asked to do, this was ordained by God, and I love telling this story. Several years ago, I was invited to do a lecture series at a university in Arkansas. Well, I'd never done anything like that before. I, I didn't want to do that, but my uncle lives in that city. And I thought, oh, a free trip to go see my uncle. So I said yes. After I said yes, they sent me the list of the people who'd done those lecture series in years past. Lady Thatcher, Henry Kissinger, the president of Russia, Gorbachev had been there, y'all. I was in big trouble, but God was in this lecture series invitation. The first event of the several days was a banquet given for donors to the school and alumni. And I sat at the head table with the student who'd planned the banquet. And as we began eating our salad, he said to me, my dad and your husband were really good friends growing up. And I thought, this kid is mistaken because Martin didn't grow up in America. Martin grew up in the Philippines. And then this student told me how his father had grown up in the Philippines, that he and Martin had been dorm mates together at boarding school at Faith Academy in Manila. Well, that explained that. And that his grandfather and grandmother had done Bible translation for Wycliffe Bible Translators. 
I said, "Oh, what language did they work in?" They said, "He said Tausug." What? Tausug was the language that many of the Abu Sayyaf spoke, and I knew this conversation was meant to be. So I got his grandparents' contact information, and it took several months before I was able to meet with Seymour and Lois Ashley, a dear elderly couple, came to visit my home in Kansas. Had the best time talking. They told me stories of living in the southern Philippines where it wasn't safe to live. All the things they had translated, they talked about. The thing that intrigued me right away was a comic book series they did. Thirteen comic books on the lives of the prophets. Uh, Adam, Abraham, Moses, Elijah, David, on through Jesus. I said, I'd love to see those comic books. Maybe I should order a set just to get a good look. They said, oh... Uh, those are out of print. In fact, many things, most things that they had spent years translating, risking their lives to live on that Muslim island, were out of print, and I threw a little fit. That was not acceptable. And our foundation made it a priority to get all those things back into print. And the first thing we printed was the comic book series. We were so happy when these came out. They're beautiful. They're colorful. I have no idea what they say. They're in Taosug. Some of the first people to get a hold of them was an American couple that works in a maximum security prison in Manila. And they gave them out and the guys loved them. They said, anything else you print, we want to read. But they said, the interesting thing that's happened here is some of these guys are coming to us. They found out Gracia Burnham printed these. They're saying, we're former Abu Sayyaf. We're the ones who held Martin and Gracia captive. I said, well, find out their names. Maybe I know them. Here came the names. Zacharias, who on May 27 burst into our room at Dos Palmas and took us captive. He was so surprised to find out that our youngest son and him had the same name, Zachary, Zacharias, that we would name one of our children after one of their Muslim prophets. We just let him think that. Also in prison is Daoud, the guy that used to sit and talk with Martin when we would rest during our long days of hiking. Daoud's wife and child had died in childbirth. And since the economy is horrible in the southern Philippines, he found himself with no family, no means of support. He joined the Abu Sayyaf almost as a career move. Martin and Daoud would discuss all sorts of things from jihad to being shaheed, being martyred. They discussed Daoud's hopes and dreams. Also in jail is Bashir. We called him Bas for short. He was shot in the same gun battle that Martin died in, the one that led to my rescue. Bashir was unable to keep up with the group as they retreated down the river, so they left him behind to fend for himself in the jungle with 500 pesos, $10. You can't buy anything in the jungle. You can't take care of yourself. Several days later, the military found him. Gangrene had moved into his leg. It had to be amputated. One after another, they told us of these men that Martin and I lived with, hiked with, starved with, 23 or so of them. You know, my kids and I had been asking God to do something in the hearts of the Abu Sayyaf. But even more than that, we'd been asking for some means of reaching them, some contact with them. But I didn't know, number one, how could I ever find any Abu Sayyaf? Number two, what could I do if I did find some of them? And here, God had just done it. All we did was print some comic books. God did everything else. He even worked out some ministers to work in that prison. In maximum security, uh, Will and Joni work with 11 prison pastors 
prisoners who've come to know the Lord and sort of gone through a seminary type training. And they wrote and asked me if I would be willing to donate books in the presence of my enemies to these guys because they sort of knew my story, but not really. So I sent the books and their response after they read them was, if Gracia can forgive the Abu Sayyaf after they did such awful things to her and Martin, we should forgive the Abu Sayyaf and begin working with them. Because you see, up until then, the Abu Sayyaf were shunned in the prison. Everyone hated them because they were the really bad guys, the terrorists. These prison pastors specifically pray for and work with them. Will and Joni try to come back every other summer, and we get together and plan ways to show the love of Christ to these guys. They always bring me gifts. Uh, last year, it was dried mangoes. A time before that, it was... A t-shirt that a bunch of the guys have signed says, Inmate Maximum. I said, Will and Joni, what am I supposed to do with that t-shirt? You can't wear it to the mall. (laughs) I could spend an hour telling you this story, but awesome things are happening in the prison. These guys are reading the scriptures in their own dialects. Some of them are going to Bible studies. God's blessing our meager efforts. So far, four former Abu Sayyaf have come to know Jesus as their Savior. One, a very violent man with over 20 counts of murder against him. A new person in Christ. A brother in the Lord. And we really can't believe what God's doing. And we just keep praying. And I wonder if you would want to pray too when you think about me and my story. Pray for those guys. Especially for Zacharias. Zachary, who's very hard and resistant towards anything having to do with the gospel. God can do anything, can't he? And it's not over till it's over. And I think God's let me be a small part of what's happening there just to encourage me because he's good and he loves doing good things for his children. Had I known while we were going through our hard year in the jungle that one day even one of those guys would come to know Jesus because of our experience, I think the days would have been easier to bear. And I could kick myself now and say, would it not have been enough to trust a good God with the days of my life? Can we begin to believe that God takes us into hard situations, not to crush us, but so that we can learn to see his hand and learn to trust him when he's doing a good work. And God's work is good, always good. What he's doing in your situation is good. I've been encouraged that there cannot be a harvest without seed planters. And maybe planting seeds isn't always fun. Maybe it's downright uncomfortable for you. You might not see any fruit for your labors. You might wonder why you were called to plant seeds because you're not even good at it. But all of a sudden you see what God's doing. And I've been reminded that the seed we planted in the jungle wasn't wasted. Others are reaping what we sowed ever so long ago. So keep planting those seeds, my friend. Keep on when it's hard, when you don't know what you're doing, when you feel like giving up. Just keep on. It's God that's going to do the work on down the road. You've been very kind this morning. You have listened well. Um, you know, I speak a lot and people are always really nice to me. I could bore you to tears and they would say, oh, that was so nice. Because they don't want me to feel bad, right? I've been through enough. When I was young, I was the daughter of a pastor. And at school, kids weren't quite so kind. Um, they would say, oh, Christianity, that's just a crutch. And I thought, well, let's see about crutches. On Friday night, when one of the football stars gets hurt, he comes to school on Monday on crutches. 
He doesn't pull himself along on his hands and knees down the hall to get to class. And nobody stands and laughs at the big football player because he's on crutches. They all understand he needs something to help him right now. We're all needy. We're ruined. We're broken. And we all have crutches. We talked about those things that keep life going well for you. Yours might be your career or your family. Some of you folks, your young folks, your good looks or your sense of style might be what makes you you. Money might be your crutch. Speaking of money, I heard a very wealthy man say, well, I'll just tell you who it was, was Ted Turner, multi-billionaire CNN Ted Turner. He said, Christianity's for losers. And I thought, your point is, that didn't offend me. I'm a loser. Have you taken a good look at this world lately? If you think we're okay, you're not watching CNN. Come to think of it, Christianity's not a crutch. It's a stretcher. That last day in the jungle for us, we thought something had to happen. We hadn't eaten in nine days. We were going on day 10 with nothing to eat. I, I thought if you didn't eat for three days, you drop dead, but you don't. We had salt. We had water. We were weak. We were exhausted. We were trying to find this elusive village where they told us another ransom was waiting, but we didn't know where we were. Our guides had never been in that area before. We were wandering around lost. What we didn't know was there was no other ransom. We also didn't know that the guys on the outside, the CIA had sewn a homing device into a backpack that they had sent into Abu Sabaya the day before, one of the leaders of our group. So they were able to tell what area we were in, and they were closing in on us. About sundown one evening, they decided we should cross the road. Well, it had been raining heavily, like it does in the tropics every day, and I knew the road would be muddy, and we would leave our tracks as we crossed. I told my guard... Go tell Sabaya we shouldn't cross the road. The soldiers will see it. They'll follow us. There will be another gun battle. I knew it was a bad idea. Of course, they didn't listen to me, and we crossed the road. And sure enough, the next day, the soldiers saw our tracks. They began to follow us. We realized about 9 the next morning that we were being followed, so we started off. We found food that morning, unripe nanka fruit, jackfruit growing, and we just gorged ourselves with it and kept moving. And I was so discouraged. I told Martin, as I always did, I I don't know how much longer I can do this. And Martin said, Gracia, just keep going today. Keep going today. Around noon, maybe it was threatening to rain. And we'd learned over the year in the jungle that one of the unwritten rules between the Abu Sayyaf and the military was they never fought in the rain, right? Well, they never fought at night, right? They never fought in the rain either. It's like there was this list of rules. So it was raining and we thought we were safe. And we stopped to wait out the rain. We set up our hammocks and our toldas, our plastic sheeting that we would kind of tie to the trees to shed the water and we lay down for a rest. Suddenly the gunfire started in. The military had pressed on in the rain. They came over the hill and opened fire on us. Even before I could hit the ground, I was wounded in the leg. I slid down the hill. It was very steep and slick from being wet. And I came to rest beside Martin. And I looked over at him and he was bleeding from his chest. And I knew from experience that leg wounds might heal. Chest wounds don't. 
Martin lay there breathing loudly, almost snoring. I was trying to do what he had always taught me to do in a gun battle, lay flat on the ground, make the smallest target you can make and wait for someone to tell you what to do. I was trying to look dead, actually. I thought the worst thing that can happen right now is the Abu Sayyaf drag me off into the jungle with Martin dying and this nightmare continue. All of a sudden, I felt Martin get very heavy. Have you heard the term, the weight of death? I think that's what I was feeling, but I didn't know. I'd never watched a person die before. And when the gunfire started to die down and I could hear the shouts of the Abu Sayyaf retreating down the river and the soldiers coming down from the top of the hill, I started to move my hands slowly around so they would know that I was still alive. And they saw me moving and came down and dragged me to the top of the hill. And as they were dragging me away from Martin, I looked back at him. And he was white, and that's when I knew he was dead. And they called a helicopter, and when it arrived, they told me, uh, we're, we're going to move you now. Uh, we want you to close your eyes tightly because the helicopter's kicking up a lot of debris, and we don't want you to get that stuff in your eyes. And I said, oh, oh no, I can make it on my own. I don't need you. I'm going to crawl to that helicopter. Did I say that? No. I closed my eyes. And they carried me on a stretcher. And as they carried me, I thought, thank you, God. Thank you for sending me someone to help. I'm going to get out of here and I'm going to be okay. And knowing Jesus is not a crutch, it's a stretcher. For those of us who are needy and broken and cannot do it on our own. And everyone's trusting something. And you can trust yourself if you want to. That's up to you. But I'm thinking someday... Ted Turner's going to run out of money or fame or power and he's going to find himself in need. And scripture says, what good is it if you gain the whole world and you lose your own soul? People are trusting some pretty crazy things these days. Have you noticed that? Here's what a lady named Rhonda Byrne says. She wrote a New York Times bestseller as well. She says, you are God. You are God in a physical body. You are spirit in the flesh. You are eternal life expressing itself as you. You are a cosmic being, all power, all wisdom, all intelligence, perfection, magnificence. You are the creator and you are creating the creation of you on this planet. The earth turns on its orbit for you. The birds sing for you. The sun rises and it sets for you. The stars come out for you. Take a look around. None of it could exist without you. No matter who you thought you were, now you know the truth of who you really are. You are the master of the universe, the heir to the kingdom, the perfection of life, and now you know the secret. Hey, I knew it. There has to be some reason why I am so busy. I am master of the universe. No wonder I'm so tired. We're all trusting something, you guys. And I choose to trust Almighty God. And I choose to believe that contrary to what Rhonda Burns says, I am not God. I am sinful man in great need of a Savior. And I believe that God provided a Savior for me when he sent Jesus to die for me. And I believe that God is sovereign in life. And that events in the jungle didn't take him by surprise. And I believe that he is good. And he is faithful. And that all things work together for good to those who love him. That's what I believe. He's the one I'm trusting.
And I thank you for having me this morning. God bless you guys.